Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. The U.S. has no ban on the execution of people with mental illnesses. Many states have considered legislation to exclude the mentally ill from execution, but none have taken that step yet. The Supreme Court has stated that a defendant's mental illness must be taken into consideration as an important reason to spare his or her life. Those with mental illness cannot necessarily understand their defense, even if they are declared competent to stand trial. Additionally, many death row inmates will waive their appeals and volunteer to be put to death. Today, we are discussing a man who was put to death despite his well-documented mental illness. Okay, on to the show. On August 10, 1982, at 4.38 p.m., a call was placed to the Fort Worth Police Department. The caller told dispatcher Joe Ellen Baker, I need somebody to come out here now. My son's been murdered. Joe Ellen asked the caller, well, how do you know he's been murdered? The answer was shocking and not something dispatchers hear very often. The caller said, well, he doesn't have a head. Officers responded to the home in Lake Worth and found the victim had not only been decapitated, but also sexually mutilated. A knife and bloody rope were found near this victim's body. Tony Davis and Phil South first responding officers on the scene, went next door and, after not getting an answer to their knock, looked through the glass on a side door of the house and saw a man and woman lying on the floor. They gained entry through the unlocked back door and found these two deceased along with two others. The decapitated man was identified as Ricky Lee Bryant, age 31. He was found with his head in the crook of his arm and his testicles and penis were elsewhere in the home. The victims next door had their throats slashed, including an 11-year-old boy. These four victims were later identified as Georgia Reed, 34, her son Scott Reed, 11, her mother Erlene Baker, and Bruce Gardner, 34. There were also stab wounds, puncture marks, and one had been shot. The victims were taken to the Tarrant County morgue, but due to another mass murder the day before, plus additional homicides, a drowning, four suicides, a crib death, a multi-vehicle fatality, and natural deaths. The morgue was full and several bodies had to be taken to local funeral homes until autopsies could occur and the 16-body cooler could be emptied. On August 11, 1982, in Wichita, Kansas, around 5 a.m., a policewoman came across a young man sleeping in the front seat of a car, which was parked behind a church. They had been making routine checks at the church because it had been burglarized several times in the recent weeks. When they ran the license plate through the nationwide system, it came back with a positive hit for a stolen vehicle out of Texas. The vehicle belonged to one of the victims, Bruce Gardner, of the Lake Worth murders. Police arrested the man and also found a gun in the vehicle. There were three forms of identification in the car as well, two belonging to the victims of the Lake Worth killings. When the man was taken into custody, he did not resist, and he was taken to the Wichita Police Headquarters. 
The man was identified as Larry Keith Robison, a Fort Worth resident, who had two prior arrests for thefts in the mid-1970s. He had also been arrested in 1982 after the burglary of a friend's house, but the charges were dropped because of an unlawful search by the police. Wichita police contacted the Fort Worth Police Department, who verified some of the IDs were those of victims at Lake Worth. Wichita police filed charges of possession of a handgun against Larry, while Fort Worth detectives chartered a plane to Wichita. When Larry was arraigned in front of a judge in Wichita, he waived extradition and flew back to Fort Worth with investigators that night. On the flight back, he verbally confessed to the slayings before the plane landed at Meacham Field around 6.50 p.m. on August 11th. Photographers were waiting and snapped a picture of Larry using his forefinger as an imitation gun. Larry Keith Robison dictated a simple one-page statement confessing to the crimes, but did not give an explanation for the slayings. He spent his 25th birthday in jail while reporters scrambled to find out who he was and who the victims were. Larry dropped out of high school and joined the Air Force after his junior year. He attended Tarrant County Junior College and lived in Haltom City from March 1981 until May 1982. He lived there with his partner and their baby girl until the relationship apparently deteriorated and she moved out in January going back home to her parents in Kansas City. When he left Haltom City, he moved in with Ricky Lee Bryant in the Lake Worth Cottage. The two had apparently not known each other very long. Larry was the son of Kenneth and Lois Robinson of Burleson, Texas. Articles at the time described him as a man of extremes. People who knew him said he was clean-cut, a hard worker, and polite. Others said he was a drug addict, a fighter, and always in trouble with the law. He was arrested and charged for theft in 1977 for writing hot checks for a snake and snake supplies. Larry was sentenced to three years probation from this charge. According to a letter he wrote to Judge Byron Matthews, the judge in his case, Larry voluntarily committed himself to John Peter Smith Hospital for a psychiatric observation. He was there for about a month before being transferred to the VA hospital in Waco for more treatment. Unfortunately, Larry was using drugs at this time. In March 1979, he was arrested again, this time on auto theft charges. He pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor theft charge and spent six months in the Parker County Jail. When he was released, he returned to Tarrant County, where he was accepted into a drug rehab program and lived in a halfway house for three months. Larry continued to get into trouble and was kicked out of the program for traffic violations. In December 1979, his probation officer filed paperwork to revoke his probation and sent him to prison, since he had not fulfilled the terms of the probation. However, Judge Matthews intervened and asked for the probation hearing to be held. Larry wrote the letter to Judge Matthews while in jail for this matter. He asked the judge for a second chance and said, Judge Matthews, I am trying to do the right things and stay out of trouble. I'll admit I've made some mistakes, but I don't consider myself a criminal and don't want to have anything to do with people who are on the wrong side of the law. Judge Matthews ordered Larry released from jail. It was during this time that Larry met his soon-to-be partner who was also on probation for theft. The pair moved in together to the house in Haltom City and Larry showed himself to be a changed man. He worked during the day for a restoration company and attended night classes. 
However, when the couple split up, the change was almost immediate. Neighbors reported he partied all night and developed the gaunt appearance of a man on drugs. Neighbors were also not sure when he slept, as cars were constantly coming and going to his house. He had also started hanging out at gay bars in Fort Worth, where he was often seen starting fights and had to be ejected at least once. Larry's parents, however, knew there was more to the story than just the drug use. When he was 12 or 13, he started using drugs, and they realized there was a problem. This became even more pronounced after someone slipped LSD into his drink at a Halloween party in 1978. After this, he was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic and received help from a county psychiatric unit. But he became depressed and suicidal. Lois contacted hospitals, asking for long-term assistance, but several places said his disease was not severe enough. She even went to a judge, asking him to commit Larry, but nothing worked, and he did not get the assistance he clearly needed. She said he would call her at all hours of the day and night and tell her he was sick and that he heard voices. Several people told police and reporters Larry and Ricky Lee Bryant were lovers but friends and family members of both men said they did not believe this was true. However, Ricky's parents had not known he was gay until his murder. Larry's partner said he had never questioned his sexuality around her, but she was concerned that if he decided to experiment, it would have driven him over the edge. Another of Larry's former girlfriends was shocked to hear that he was allegedly bisexual. The day after Larry's arrest and return to Fort Worth, Arlington police decided to question him in the January 1981 slaying of a University of Texas at Arlington history professor. The professor was Martin Hall, who was stabbed 10 times. Forensic photography experts had recovered the image of a man from the paper backing of a Polaroid photo. Larry fit the image of the man in the photograph. There were numerous original Polaroids missing from the house, but the paper backing served as a negative so police were able to recreate most of them. Most of the photos were pornographic in nature, so it appeared perhaps the photographs had something to do with the murder. Martin Hall was a gay man, and police believed he and Larry had mutual friends. However, after questioning him, Arlington Police Sergeant Dennis Roden said he did not believe Larry had anything to do with Martin Hall's murder. On Thursday, August 19, 1982, Larry was arraigned before Justice of the Peace Mike Hernandez for the murder of Ricky Lee Bryant. He was also assigned his state-appointed attorneys by State District Judge Rufus Adcock. Charles Roach and J.R. Molina were assigned to defend Larry. After remaining silent throughout the entire proceeding, Larry gave Mike Hernandez an unsmiling salute. Investigators waited to file charges for the other murders, pending the release of the autopsy results and other findings. In the aftermath of the killings, the people who lived in the Lake Worth area were frightened and mistrusting. Crime was fairly low in that area, with violent crime being almost non-existent. The residents of the area usually only worried about the trash people dumped along their dirt roads. However, after the grisly discovery of five slashed and mutilated bodies, people began locking their doors and confirming who was on the other side before opening to anyone. The gay community in Lake Worth were scared for a different reason. They feared the public would find out the slangs had ties to gay men, 
and that they would think the entire gay community was violent. A fire occurred shortly after the slayings and completely engulfed the house previously occupied by Georgia Reed, her young son, and her mother. The cause of the fire was indeterminate, although investigators were not ruling out arson. Attorney Charles Roach said this would harm the defense since he could not view the crime scene. An investigator for the district attorney's office was in the house just an hour before the fire was reported. A little over a week after the murders, capital murder charges were filed in the death of Bruce Gardner. This charge brought a possible penalty of execution and could only be filed in the commission of another felony along with the murder. Prosecutors stated that Larry had robbed Bruce after he killed him, taking his watch, billfold, and car. Charles Roach said these charges were a mistake and that the Texas prosecutors had made the same mistake in the Cullen Davis trial. Investigators believed Bruce Gardner was murdered quite some time after the other victims. Ricky Bryant, Georgia Reed, her son, and mother were all murdered in early morning, evidenced by the fact they were all still in nightgowns. Bruce Gardner, who had a date with Georgia Reed that day, was wearing jeans. In November, with a grand jury still not called on the case, an emergency hearing was convened to discuss who exactly was going to represent Larry Keith Robison. A Fort Worth attorney told Judge Rufus Adcock that he had spoken to Larry for quite some time and he would be representing him in court. On November 15, 1982, Judge Adcock called prosecutors Charles Roach, J.R. Molina, and Carol Jernigan to appear before him. Larry was present as well and was silent once again. After quite some time, Carol Jernigan admitted he was mistaken about representing Larry. One of Larry's friends had told the attorney his services were needed, so he met with the defendant and talked to him for quite some time. Once it was decided that Charles and J.R. were still defending Larry, Judge Adcock ordered Carol Jernigan not to disclose anything Larry had revealed to him. There were also two grand juries who could have heard the case, but by an odd coincidence, the uncle of one of the victims and the mother of another were both serving on the same grand jury, so Larry's case was heard by the other. On November 25, 1982, the grand jury indicted Larry Keith Robinson on capital murder and murder charges. Prosecutors contended that Larry robbed all of the victims except for Scott Reed, the young boy. Assistant District Attorney Larry Moore said, Our position is that what happened here is that these were robbery murders. Although his primary intention was to murder these people, he did in fact rob them. In February 1983, attorneys met to discuss the case and to have a trial date set. J.R. Molina said they were not ready to take the case to trial, but they were reasonably certain Larry would enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. J.R. said he believed that Larry's existing mental instability, the use of drugs, and the emergence into the gay scene in Fort Worth merged together to create this mental defect that led to the incidents. I think that because of his mental incompetency or insanity, that he fell into this crowd that was abusing him passing him around like the new boy in town. Larry had been in isolation at the Tarrant County Jail since a suicide attempt in the fall of 1982, and Charles Roach said he had recently been told by an emergency room nurse that Larry had been brought into the John Peter Smith Hospital to have his stomach pumped after he had saved his medications and taken them all at once. 
In May 1983, a month before the trial was slated to begin, attorneys confirmed that Larry would be pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. The state essentially scoffed at this, stating, even if it is shown he was involved in drugs and had emotional problems, that in and of itself does not meet the legal requirement for insanity. I think the facts will show that he had a rational understanding of the difference between right and wrong. The week before the trial began, defense attorneys argued that Larry's written and oral statements were invalid and should not be used in court. Larry had requested an attorney twice, but one was not provided, so anything said after that should not be used against him. The judge agreed, and the state agreed not to use the statements. They said their case was strong enough without them. However, conversations Larry's friend Judy Smith had recorded between herself and Larry were allowed in the proceedings. The two had been friends for several years, and he started calling Judy Collect from jail shortly after his arrest. At first, she took notes, but then decided to record the calls, just to try to figure out what had happened. Defense attorneys argued that she was working on behalf of the prosecution by taping the calls, but she said she wanted both sides to hear the tapes. She did ask specific questions at the bidding of prosecutors, however, including what happened to a specific body part from Ricky Lee's body and what happened to the clothes Larry was wearing the day of the murders. Dallas psychiatrist E. Clay Griffith had interviewed Larry May 23, 1983, at the order of State Judge Charles Dickens. Griffith found that Larry was competent and sane enough to stand trial. The psychiatric report said Larry showed no signs of unusual behavior, and his emotional reactions were well within normal limits. Of course, the one exception to these statements was when Larry used a paper hand puppet to answer questions. Jurors were selected after an arduous four-week process. Both sides interviewed nearly 75 potential jurors. 31 potential jurors were dismissed immediately when they told the judge they had already formed an opinion on the case. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. The first state's witness was Junette Bryant, who discovered her son's body on August 10, 1982. She stated she last spoke with him that morning, calling around 6.30 to make sure he was awake. She went to his house that afternoon around 4.15 to take him to a Democratic precinct chairman's meeting. When he didn't come out after she honked her horn, she walked inside. She looked into the bathroom and saw his legs on the floor. She was asked if she was sure he was dead when she found him, and she said, yes, because his head had been cut off. She cried as she recounted going next door to get help and not getting a response, unaware the people inside had also been murdered. Several horrifying photos were shown in court on the first day, although the defense objected. Three knives from Ricky Lee's household were introduced into evidence. Two of these were smaller steak knives found near Ricky Lee's body. The third and largest knife was found near a sink where part of Ricky Lee's genitals were found. A crime scene investigator testified he had found six shell casings in the same room as Ricky Lee's body, as well as a blood-caked piece of rope loosely wrapped around Ricky Lee's body. 
Witnesses testified that Larry had purchased a handgun one week before the murders, and also he had purchased bullets the day of the murders. Judy Smith testified that Larry had told her he was driven to kill his evil roommate, Ricky Lee Bryant, and their four evil neighbors because Ricky Lee used tarot cards and Georgia Reed practiced witchcraft. He told her in one phone conversation, quote, You're going to think I'm crazy, but I felt like it was God wanting me to do it. Judy also testified that Larry said he almost killed the police officer who arrested him. He had his hand on his gun as the officer approached him. Judy said Larry had lived with her on and off since 1976, but they only had sex one time. She also said Larry told her Ricky Lee's genitals disgusted him. He decapitated Ricky Lee because he intended on getting rid of the body by disposing of it in pieces. Thomas Osmer testified after Judy Smith and said he knew Ricky Lee and Larry were lovers because Ricky Lee had told him so. When questioned by the defense, Charles Roach asked him if there was motive in him testifying against Larry because Larry killed Ricky Lee, who was also Thomas's lover. Thomas denied this. Lois Robison was a defense's star witness. She testified that Larry went from a happy straight-A student to a young man who heard voices and was convinced his friends were trying to kill him. She said he joined the Air Force and came back 18 months later, talking about the occult and witchcraft and claiming to be able to move things with his mind. He built a plywood pyramid and slept under it, claiming it gave him special mental powers. He called her one day, claiming he had been flying out of his body over Camp Bowie, lit up like a neon sign, seeing the story of my life. There's something terribly wrong with me, he concluded. He told her he once blew up a car with his mind, because sometimes things built up pressure in his head until it burst out. In his closing arguments, J.R. Molina made the argument that Larry was insane, that only an insane person could commit the barbaric act of cannibalism Larry committed. He expanded, What sane person, what reasonable, rational person, would take the genitals of another, cut it up, and eat it? Despite the various testimonies of insanity, Larry Robison was found guilty of capital murder and given the death penalty. Within a year of his sentencing, Larry had written Judge Dickens twice, asking for a halt to the appeals process. He wrote, I don't see any sense in sentencing me to death and then making me go through all this legal mumbo-jumbo that may stretch out for years while I slowly waste away in a 5 by 8 cell. I believe I have a right to die without doing all that. I would appreciate if you would go ahead and set a date for this thing so my family can go ahead and get on with their lives. Judge Dickens replied back to remind Larry that the appeals is a mandatory process, but it would be a priority, so after that, he should be able to get a date. Larry explained he wanted to go to Huntsville and take his punishment like a man. It took a many great years for Larry to get his wish. He was not executed until January 21, 2000. While on death row, his mental illness became even worse, to the point his execution was stayed because the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals did not know if he was competent to be executed. He was asked what he thought the execution would be like, and he said he felt like a little kid at Christmas time, waiting for Santa Claus to come. He finally demanded the appeal stop, and also that he wanted to be executed on a full moon. 
Even though his execution outraged mental health groups around the world, the state moved forward. He did not have a final meal and had fasted four days prior to the execution. During the wait for their son's execution, Ken and Lois Robison became vocal advocates about mental illness, encouraging early treatment and institutionalization for those convicted of crimes. In 2008, Lois spoke at a prevention, not execution event in San Antonio, Texas. She talked about having three children with mental illness, including a son, David, who was bipolar and died at age 45 of a heart attack. They had a daughter, Carol, who was bipolar and in assisted living. Then, of course, Larry, who had been executed several years before. She said as a child, Larry was the type of child every mother dreamed of, a good student, active in church, played in the band, and was a Boy Scout. Until when he was in junior high and it became evident something was wrong. They tried to get him help, but for years, they were told if he wasn't violent, there wasn't much anyone could do. His first mental health breakdown happened while in the Air Force, who simply discharged him honorably. The first violent incident he had was when he committed the murders in Lake Worth. Sadly, even though a second trial was granted, his medical records were not allowed in, so the second jury also did not get to hear about his history of mental illness. Ken Robison, Larry's father, passed away on January 10, 2015. Lois Robinson passed away on May 28, 2019. It's been almost 40 years since five people were brutally murdered in their peaceful homes in Lake Worth. Ricky Lee Bryant was known throughout the Fort Worth community as a caring individual who worked for General Dynamics and was also a Democratic chairman for Precinct 113. He liked pottery and calligraphy and helped others as much as he could. Several years before, Larry had been a stage performer who did drag. He suddenly stopped performing without much of an explanation, except that he was becoming involved in politics. Georgia Reed had been married to Donald Carver, who had lived with her until about three months before her murder. He told reporters that she and Ricky Lee were very good friends, although the friendship had seemed to fall off in recent weeks. She worked as a massage therapist for numerous high-profile clients in the Fort Worth area. Scott Reed was a quiet child had a reading disability, so he had been held back in school. He lied about his age because he was self-conscious about it. He was constantly worried about his mother's safety and got scared once because his mother brought home a man she introduced as Mr. Goodbar. Scott had seen the movie Looking for Mr. Goodbar, where the title character murdered a young woman who picked up men in bars. He was to turn 12 the same day Larry Robison turned 25. Less is known about Georgia Reed's mother, Earlene Baker, other than she worked for a medical collection agency. Bruce Gardner was truly in the wrong place at the wrong time. He had just met Georgia Reed a few days before when a mutual friend suggested they go out. He had stopped by Georgia's house the night before the murders, and they made a date for the next day. He contacted his place of employment between 11 a.m. and noon on August 10th and quit his job. Bruce enjoyed reading and working on his cars and motorcycle. Ironically, the same week as these murders, there was another mass murder in Texas, where an irate employee shot and killed several co-workers before turning the gun on himself. This was also the same week that Coral Eugene Watts was arrested for multiple murders in the Houston area. Also, bones of at least two people were found in a well. 
and Henry Burton Merrill was arrested for these crimes. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. This episode was written by Susie St. John, research by Brittany Martinez and Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez. The show is produced by the best in the business, Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com.